This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I tell you why you should learn to cook instead of relying on someone else to do it for you. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on buddy not much my dear friend how the hell are you i am good man i i could not be better today uh what are you drinking on man well my lovely bride has made me an old-fashioned uh from uh, I think it's called, I think it's Weller's Special Reserve. There, uh, I think it's the twelve year. It's that weeded bourbon. Have you ever had it? I have not. I've actually never even heard of it. Yeah, it, it's a Buffalo Trace product, and it to me and, and I own Pappy, as you know, Pappy Van Winkle bourbon. You've had some of it here on the farm, and uh, it, it's a lot like Pappy's in the fact that it's made from the same folks, it's the same distillery. I'm pretty sure it's a similar. Um, mash bill i know the bourbon snobs out there are going to send me hate mail but because i'm sure i'm screwing it up but yeah man she made me an old-fashioned you ever had one i love old fashions man that is my drink of choice and i am not drinking an old-fashioned right now i'm just having a plain old beer right now but we actually my girlfriend's uh, brother and uh, sister-in-law came over last night and i made some old-fashioned that's always a crowd pleaser man yeah, and I got to admit, man, it's only like the second or third time I've had one. Normally, I'm just a straight bourbon dude. You know, I don't really go for the cocktails, but uh, this thing was, I think it's going to be my new jam. Yeah, if you know how to make a good one, it, it's really, really good. Unfortunately, I never, I will absolutely never order a, a, a an old-fashioned at a bar because it's, it's I, I'm going to say a 70-30 shot, you're going to get a bad one or you're going to get a real good one. And the bad ones always have tiny little ice in them that melts real fast and waters it down, and they have fruit muddled in the bottom of it and all that crap, and I I hate that crap. Uh, Well, I had my first one on the bourbon trail at the Jim Beam Distillery. Uh, You could, uh, at the end of the tour, if you wanted, you you could get cocktails, and they'd take you into this other room. You know, you'd have to pay a little extra for it, but... The guy making it there, dude, I mean, spoiled me forever because it was absolutely flawless. Yeah, man. If, if you get a good one, it is really, really good. And I feel like we should probably do a show on how to build a cocktail at some point. And that is probably my model cocktail. I, I think there's three or four drinks. If you know how to make, you can pretty much make something for everybody, something for a cold winter night, something for a hot summer day, something just to sip on in the early afternoon. Uh, I, I, I like making a good cocktail. I, as you know, man, I, I, and this kind of ties into this episode. We didn't plan this. It's just working out that way. I love entertaining. I love having people over. I love having people sit at my table and break bread with me. And that's a big part of that. It's being able to make them a cocktail that they're like, holy crap, this is the best whatever I've ever had. And old fashioned is kind of my go-to just a couple of years ago. I was like, man, that is, that is one of the classic drinks and I want to know how to make a good one. We, we should probably hit that on a show at some point. A hundred percent, man. I, if 
I'm glad you caught the segue because I was fixing to jump all over and be Sally Segway today. But yeah, because it it's very similar to what we're talking about today, and and this topic of today, if I'm not mistaken, is why you should learn to cook. So a, a neat tie-in would be, yeah, well, you know, why you should learn to make a great cocktail for your friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. So, uh, I are you? Do you cook, man? Yeah, um, not as much as I probably used to. Uh, back in the day, you know, um, I'd say probably five or ten years ago, I was much, much, much more into it than I am now. I've kind of relinquished the kitchen to my lovely bride. But um, we are a big proponent of cooking at home because partly, as you know, we live out in the middle of nowhere. And and, and the other thing is this small town we live in only has a couple of really good restaurants. So you're going to have to learn to eat, you know, make your own stuff at home. Yeah, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's sometimes it can be a challenge for us because we are we're right here in the big city, so it's really easy to call something in. To there's all kinds of stuff that we can just walk to, so that's that's always a temptation, and we kind of have to make a habit of cooking for ourselves, and that kind of ties in with working out and getting enough sleep that we did an episode on a couple weeks ago, and and that sort of stuff. Um, it, as long as we stay in that habit of, of doing all the right things, it, it it's much easier to cook at home. And there's, uh, well, we're about to go into this, but there's a ton of benefits to cooking at home. But before I get into that, man, I, I just think you should be able to feed yourself. Um, you know, you might have the money now to eat out all the time or to call Uber Eats every night or have pizza delivered or whatever. But I think there's something to be said just for that capability to feed your own damn self instead of having someone else cook for you and bring it to you and all you do is shovel it into your face. Well, I, and this isn't in the show notes, and I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a little phobic about what I ingest, man. I, I am I'm weirded out. If I don't know, you know, the person that brought in the cookies to, to work, you know, I'm not touching them because I don't know what your kitchen looks like. I don't know what your hygiene practices are. I don't know what ingredients you may have put in this thing. And I get a little leery about that. So I'm a huge, if for no other reason than feeding my own uh, feedback loop of my phobia of ingesting something weird, um, I'm all about cooking at home, dude. Well, I, I'll take that as a compliment, man, because you've definitely eaten my cooking. And uh, and actually, you've eaten my girlfriend's baking, too. As you know, she is a just a phenomenal baker. And uh, take that as a compliment that you guys uh, just dove right into what we were cooking up there. Well, that's why I stayed in the kitchen the whole time you were cooking, Justin. So I can watch. Yeah, that's, that's. <laughs> but, but seriously, you know, for the listener out there, Justin is an unbelievable cook, man. I will absolutely attest to that. Um, so you, you were kind of leading into some of the advantages of cooking at home before I tried to steal the show with my own weird psychological issues. So what's kind of the number one reason you think is an advantage well, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a number one. I, I've got three big reasons in our notes here, and I, I don't know that one is really any more important than the other. I think they're all pretty pretty important. And the first one I'm going to hit on is the cost, the expense. And man, we can't go to the grocery store without spending fifty, sixty bucks, and usually it's more like a hundred bucks. Um, the grocery store seems expensive. But usually we can get enough food there to get us, both of us, two humans, through three or four days um, preparing food for ourselves, which we'll get into the other benefits of that. But if you take something that we think of as really, really cheap, and I'm just going to use McDonald's as the low-hanging fruit example here. And 
I, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I eat at McDonald's sometimes. Uh, usually it's an emergency when I'm starving to death and there is nothing, you know, on the highway or something, there is nothing else around. And I'll just tell you, pretty much any time of day, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, McDonald's is going to cost you about six bucks a meal, somewhere in that somewhere in that range, somewhere between, probably not a lot cheaper than that, unless you're just getting the sandwich, it's probably going to be at least six bucks, so... Uh, if you if you ate fast food three meals a day, that's eighteen bucks a day, uh, just about absolute minimum. Uh, that's ninety bucks over five days for one person. That that is not inexpensive food. Yeah, and you know, for me, you know, with a, a good sized family, dude, it, I'm not getting out for under fifty to a hundred dollars. I don't care if I'm even going to McDonald's. I mean. This stuff is ridiculously expensive. I mean, we have it built into our budget to eat out, but uh, really, you know, is it worth it? Yeah, and and well, I mean, I think sometimes it is. I definitely eat out. I definitely enjoy, you know, I, I guess the difference is for me, it, it's a big treat. For me and my girlfriend, it's a, hey, we've, you know, we've planned this. We've built this into the budget. We've eaten at home every night this week. Saturday night, whatever it is, but like we're going to go somewhere halfway decent and sit down and have dinner, or we're going to go for brunch on Sunday, or whatever the case may may be. It's it's a treat to to go do that. Uh, the other thing, if you eat out all the time, if you go to restaurants all the time, there's a big temptation to overspend on dessert, uh, order that extra beer, that extra glass of wine, or whatever. And that stuff adds up in a hurry, especially your uh, your alcoholic beverages. That's one of the biggest profit margin things in the restaurant industry. You'll, I mean, it's not unheard of at all to pay eight, nine, ten dollars for that second glass of wine when you could probably go buy the bottle for twelve or thirteen at the at the store. Um, one of the neatest things I have ever heard on doing that is to keep your banking app on your phone, and when you're sitting at that restaurant. And you say, nope, I'm not going to have this second glass of wine. Just go ahead and transfer that $9 into your savings account. And pat yourself on the back for doing a good job. Wow, that's, pretty, that's a pretty neat advice, man. I never heard that before. Yeah, so that's a, uh, that's a, a friend of mine that has an awesome financial podcast. I, I think we should probably have him on the show at some point to talk about uh, personal finance because I know he could do a way better job of, of it than I could. Um, but the expense is a, is a big advantage to eating at home. You can feed yourself. If you're really good about it, you can probably feed yourself for a third of what you would pay just eating garbage fast food all the time. So I'm going to say the next big thing is health. Would you disagree with that? Oh, no, I would probably put that at number one. But one final thing on expense, I would tell you, is my wife believes that, you know, uh, the minimum you should ever tip is 20%. So with that being said, I mean, you calculate 20% on top of a family's eating out uh, bill and and now the the it starts to grow exponentially every single time you go out. But I, that was just the one final thing on that with regard to health. What 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 are you thinking about, man? What's the one thing you're worried about on the health issue? Well, so when you cook at home, you get to control your ingredients. Like you said, you get to see exactly what goes into your food, exactly what the um, you know cleanliness standard of the kitchen is. You you control that entirely. What the cleanliness of the staff is, and and all that stuff. But a big thing for me is just the ingredients that are in the food. And I'm not I'm not a diet guy. I've never done keto. I've never done paleo. I've never done Atkins. I've never done 
the South Beach diet, whatever. Uh, I, I've never really gotten any, into any of these diet things, but uh, except for maybe one, which is the Whole Foods diet, which I, I think we might have hit on this before. Basically, I just try to eat things that are minimally processed as close to their natural state as I can get them. When I buy garlic, I don't buy the garlic that's already chopped up. It's in some sort of liquid. It's in a jar, and it's been in that jar for God knows how long before I bought it at the grocery store. I just go buy a clove of garlic or a bulb of garlic, and when I need some garlic, I peel a bulb off of there and chop it up and put it into whatever I'm using. I I firm believer in food as close as you can get it to its natural state, minimal preservatives, and, and all that stuff. And a major percentage of restaurant food uh, is is prepackaged stuff, especially if you're eating at, at chains, even nice chains like Cheesecake Factory or uh, Outback or whatever. M- the soup you get there is going to be in a giant bag that they cut open and pour into a pot to warm up. It's, it's not like they're just whipping shit up from scratch back there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I uh, again, it's like anything that's made in a factory, brother. I want no part of it. You know, I, it just freaks me out to think that. Uh, you know, I've been in some factories before, and and I don't want my cooking done in a factory. <laughs> yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. So the next thing I'll hit on on health and ingredients is uh, salt. So a very small percentage of the salt that Americans intake comes from the salt shaker on the table. Most of it comes, the vast majority comes from restaurants, from buying your food at a restaurant, and there's a reason for that. Most of what humans perceive as flavor is actually the result of a, a lot of salt. So restaurants have a big incentive to oversalt food. The saltier it is, to a point, obviously, but the saltier it is, the the better we perceive that food to be and the more taste we're able to experience. Salt accentuates a lot of different flavor profiles, uh, even in something like, uh, like those cupcakes that my girlfriend made, you guys. There's a little bit of salt in that icing that goes on those cupcakes. There's a little bit of salt in the batter. It helps accentuate all these other flavors. So restaurants will salt the crap out of stuff, or their prepackaged stuff will be just salted to death because we, especially in the U.S., we have a very, very high tolerance for salt. Um, and the saltier something is, the better people will say it was. Yeah, and I know we're going to talk about biodiversity at some point being one of the things. And, you know, when you when you say salt, it reminds me, you know, salt is a preservative, man. People have known that for years, you know, like um, preserving ham back on the frontier or bacon. You know, they would cover this stuff in salt, and it works because, as I understand it, salt absorbs the water from that food, right? And then when the water's pulled out, bacteria cannot multiply. They don't live in it. So it's a preservative because the bacteria can't break down that food. Well, guess what it's probably doing to your biodiversity in your gut? It's probably doing the same thing, right? I would imagine. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, we know too much of it is bad for you. And we also know that most of it comes from restaurant food. So, I, I mean, that's kind of your clue right there. I, and, you know, your your gut fauna, that's what we settled on, right? I think I was dead wrong. I think it is. I think you're right. It's gut fauna. Um, right. Yeah, it, it, it's you know, high blood pressure, heart conditions, all this other stuff that comes from eating way too much salt. You can head a lot of that off at the pass. If, you know, I've been through this issue in my family who, as a general rule, eats fairly unhealthy. And I I mean, you can't tell them that because, I mean, they're just not hearing it. But, um, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm like, hey, small changes now means you don't have to spend the last five years of your life not ever tasting salt because you just you've had your life's limit of salt and your blood pressure is going to get all out of whack if you salt your French fries. Yeah, right, right. So uh, biodiversity is another thing. So I, I'm really, really big on this, man. Most of our packaged processed food, again, which is a massive percentage of restaurant food, much more than any of us would like to admit, uh, we all think that stuff is just made from scratch back in the kitchen. And at, at small one-off places, it probably is. There, there's a good chance it is. But if it's if it's any kind of chain, even a lot of non-chain restaurants order order stuff from Cisco or these these big food providers that you know just big bags of gravy and soup and and whatever else there's a ton of corn and there's a ton of soy in that stuff we've we've basically figured out how to bend industrial corn to our will will and make it into just about anything we want to make it into we can make it into sugar in the form of high fructose corn syrup we can make it into I, I just just about anything, and there was one there was one thing that I read. I think it was a Michael Pollan book, and I know I've probably mentioned him several times on the show already. But he was saying the uh, Mayans were a corn based society, and you know they grew corn, they made everything out of corn. That was their number one cash crop. That's what their world revolved around. Uh, but he said if you compare a modern American's DNA with the DNA recovered from an ancient Mayan. Like we look like a corn chip in comparison because we're getting just a just so much corn in our diet that we're not even aware of, and most people probably think I haven't had a, a an ear of corn since last Fourth of July. Justin, what are you, what the hell are you talking about? But uh, that's probably the wrong way to look at that, right? It is totally the wrong way to look at that because. You know, if if you saw the the Frankenstein corn, it ain't what your corn on the cob looks like, right? I mean, we're talking about these are billions of acres probably in the United States that's growing this industrial corn. But let's, you know, soy is another thing, you know, that that has worked its way inside of every single thing we eat. It seems like, and and it's not soy being like uh, your your great grandpa maybe grew on his farm. This is some Frankenstein soybean that's been genetically modified so that it can be tolerant to this herbicide that Monsanto sprays on it. And um, I don't know about you, man, but once again, it creeps me out in the U.S. that we've allowed this soybean to be uh, patented, right? I mean, that that's just weird. We're patenting life. And I think that's creepy. Yeah, that that is really, really weird, man. And there have been some, uh, <laughs> there have been just some crazy lawsuits a farmer that's not growing Monsanto corn next to a farmer that is, and and it gets cross pollinated, and that farmer gets sued for growing Monsanto corn because the the pollen blew across to his uh, field. Well, it, yeah, they own the seeds. You know, farmers cannot reuse those seeds; they have to repurchase them. Is that way I understand it? It it's just weird, man. I know we're getting a little off topic, but it goes back to the the biodiversity and. My grandparents, you know, my grandmother lived to be um, 95, and her sister is still alive and living alone at 99, and uh, she's a big woman, you know, uh, and my grandfather lived to be 88, even though he smoked and drank, but the, the thing that they did that was different than you or I or our, perhaps our children in the future is they ate off their land. They um, They had cattle, you know, 34 head of cattle. That they would harvest, they had a garden that they ate off of, and only when they were really out and way away from home would they eat uh, 
food at a restaurant. Other than that, it was every single thing that that they grew, and they knew uh, what kind of you know they didn't put herbicides and pesticides and all this stuff. They didn't pump their cattle full of uh, hormones and antibiotics and stuff. So I got to think there's something to that, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, you know, talking about processing beef, this is another problem that I have is most fast food is just loaded with unsavory stuff like animal feces. Uh, The way we process feedlot cattle, if you buy a steak, you can rest pretty much assured that steak doesn't have feces in it. But the way we process these feedlot cattle is they basically stand belly deep in their own excrement pretty much their entire life, eating corn out of a trough. Because cows are ruminants, they are not meant to eat corn. we're, We're taking an animal and feeding it something it is not designed to eat it, that it can't naturally process. So because of this cows get all these infections, which is why we pump them full of antibiotics. Uh, so here we have this, uh, artificially fattened cow that's eating something that it is just totally not meant to eat. That'd be like taking a cat and trying to feed it corn or something. It, it's, it, it just boggles my mind that this thing <laughs> that we've basically engineered this cow or we're forcing it into eating something that it can't process naturally. So we have to give it all this stuff to, to make that possible. So then we take this cow, we march them to a slaughterhouse where they have all this dried shit, if, if I'm just being blunt, stuck to their hides. They come in, they get killed, they get hung up by the feet, and poop is just falling off of these hides into the meat as they go through this processing thing. And there's, uh, you know, there are, is is really no great standard in the, in the U.S. that governs how many parts per million of beef versus beef excrement can be in that meat, and it can still be sold. Um, I, I'm not going to get, you know, not going to get political here, but uh, the USDA is is like a very industry um, supportive group, and you know, like when we have recalls on beef uh, because there's you know salmonella or I, I don't know. I don't know if you get that from beef, but uh, because there's something bad in the meat, the USDA can't force the beef companies to recall that meat. Th- those are all voluntary, and they have to get really, really bad before anything actually happens to them. Uh, Europe has a much, much higher standard for uh, how cattle have to be processed and the cleanliness of the meat, and there's actually some teeth to the laws in the European Union. Uh, and I'd like to see that here, man. I, I, I think it's uh, instead of taking care of the companies. Uh, I think we should probably have a bigger interest in taking care of the people that are actually eating that meat. But I don't know. I, I like I say, I'm probably getting way too political. But well, I'll tell you what: the steaks in the UK uh, last year when we were there were just absolutely phenomenal. Um, and and I I got to think that has a lot to do with the way they're um, you know the things they eat, man. Yeah, and it, and especially when we get into ground beef, like for fast food places, I'm sure everybody saw the. You know, a couple of years ago, the big kerfuffle about using pink slime, which is basically everything in a cow that can't be used for something else, is boiled down with ammonia and all these other chemicals and turned into just this pink, literally just pink slime that's used as filler to make actual beef go further. Um, uh, quite a few years ago, Taco Bell was sued because their beef tacos, the the, the quote unquote meat in their tacos, contained less than 30% actual beef. Um, so yeah, man, fast food, you're, you're getting the absolute bottom of the barrel product and it really just tastes good to you because there's a bunch of salt on it. 
And I'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, so if, if the listeners paying attention, we're talking about the advantages of cooking. We talked about the expense. We talked about health. And on the topic of health, uh, what got me thinking about it is, is going to the UK last year, and we were in, in Edinburgh, and, and my wife's looking around. She's like, everybody here's skinny. Everybody here's skinny. I'm like, well, yeah, because there's not – if you drive anywhere, you're not going to find a fast food restaurant. You know, Maybe in the city there was one McDonald's in Edinburgh. Actually, there was two now that I think about it. But anyway – Once you leave the city, dude, and you go anywhere, you're going to have to pull off the road, stop, and go into a little pub and get a meal, or you're going to be cooking it at home. So, I mean, you can't just not like here in the U.S., man, where there's a fast food joint on every corner, and we're all in a hurry because we're Americans, and we're going to swing in and pick up a bag full of garbage, throw it to the back seat to give the kids, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, if you haven't traveled to Europe and gotten off the beaten track a little bit, I highly recommend it. Uh, Their their food culture is, boy, I I could really talk about this a lot. Their food culture is completely different. Actually, my girlfriend was a history major in college, and her uh, her final paper um, was all about historic foodways, and it's this stuff just fascinates the daylights out of me, man. Another thing on that, in 2007, I was on the USS Bataan uh, just translating across the Atlantic, and we stopped a couple places in Europe before uh, we got off the boat to fly to Afghanistan, and we stopped in Palermo, Sicily. And I think we were the first ship to pull into Palermo in like 30 years or something, something ridiculous. And there were guys that the moment that ship docked, were like, we're going to McDonald's. Who's, who wants to go? We're, we, there's a McDonald's here. We're going to find it. And it's like, dude, we've been at sea for two weeks. It's not like we've been gone for five years. Um, and I, I was like, yeah, you, you can have that, man. I, I'm going to go find something good. Yeah, amen to that. And what's funny is uh, I'm cracking up because that's exactly what my son wanted to do when we were overseas last year was wanted to eat at a McDonald's in a foreign country. And I think that's something that's unique to America, Americans. But So we talked, we talked about the health, man. What about um, what else we got? Well, the last the last big benefit I'm gonna I'm gonna list here is kind of it, it's kind of hard to define, and I don't want to get too woo woo with it. But there's some intangible benefits to this. First things first, uh, ladies love it if you can cook for them. Uh, without fail, I can almost guarantee you that is the case. And guys love it when ladies cook for them, or Guys love it when other guys cook for them or whatever your thing is. I'm not trying to yuck anybody's yum. If you can cook for your significant other, man, that's going to that's gonna go a long way. Yeah, there's something um, erotic about handling food and that you're ingesting this thing with someone. It's a very intimate process. I, I, I want to say I read a book, The Omnivorous Ape, a long time ago, and it went into some of that stuff that was pretty cool. But, you know, on the health thing, and I'm going to give a bonus because, you know, we, we do a book of the – book of the week and i I, i'm not going to steal the ones coming up but man when you were talking about the uh processing and those shit actual feces and and a lot of the meat and the e coli if you haven't read upton sinclair's the jungle dude have you read that bro Uh, yeah i sure have jesus that's disgusting and i don't think a lot a lot of those practices you know were cleaned up by the usda because the book was written almost 100 years ago but i mean a lot of it is still there in that industrial processing plants yep no question about it brother so 
yeah, but back to what you said about uh, eating being uh, cooking for someone and eating with someone. It, it's a visceral experience. I think it goes back to kind of what it means to be a human. And there's some some evolutionary imperative there to break bread with other people. And I, I, I mean, you kind of take this for me from both sides. I used to travel constantly for my work. I do 200 nights in a hotel, and almost every single one of those nights, I'm sitting down to dinner by myself, and that's not a good feeling, man. I mean, you you can you can do it for a you know a week or two at a time, but that it it really starts to get old, and you really start to crave that other person sitting across the table for you. And I I, I think you know I I think as Americans, we're isolated to our cars and our offices and and that sort of thing. I think largely that evolutionary uh, imperative is why we have so many, why we make fun of everybody for posting a picture of what they ate on Instagram. I think it's almost an evolutionary, hey, Rich, uh, I just ate these berries and they were delicious and I'm feeling healthy after I ate them. Uh, these are probably safe to eat. I, I, I think it probably goes back that far. And, and you, just for the listener, man, Justin and I send each other pictures of our food <laughs> all the time, you know, whether it's something we cooked or a great meal we're enjoying. So, I mean, we, we do it and a lot of people do it. There's got to be something that we're hardwired. I got to believe that it, it's just in our nature to, to, to want that, you know? Yeah. My girlfriend calls me a basic white girl all the time for taking pictures of whatever I'm cooking or, or eating. But yeah, man, there, there's, there is something to that. And there's something, like I said in the beginning of the show, I like entertaining. I like inviting people into my home. I like to feed them a meal. I like to take just basically raw ingredients and turn them into something that's way greater than the sum of the parts, something delicious, something they're, that they're going to remember. And I, I also like just sitting at the table and sharing that with them. That's, uh, that's something that I really feel good about doing with other people. Well, and you know, we've had an episode on being competent and dangerous. And one of the things that, uh, cooking a great meal displays is your competence. You know, it's like, well, if this guy's competent in this, he can make this delicious meal and we can share it and enjoy it together. What else is he capable of? So let's throw that in the uh, competent pile. Don't you think? Yeah, this is the example I always bring up, but if you go to James Bond house, James Bond's house or Jason Bourne's house and his butler's not there, he's probably not going to be like, well, I guess we have to call Chinese. He's probably going to like find an old onion in the bottom of the fridge and a, you know, some leftover pizza crust and a fish in the freezer and turn it into the best damn thing you ever ate, right? Yeah, I've got a friend who um, is from Nantucket and he's got an Ivy League education and He's a very cultured guy, and I, he can literally do that. Like, man, that we got nothing here. And this friend of mine, Michael, will just be like, hey, let's see. And, and next thing you know, you're eating the best damn meal of your life. And, and I always admire that quality in others. And it's, it's certainly something that you've put on display to me, and I, I will, uh, I'll not forget it. So anything else on the intangible side, bro? No, I, I, I think that's most of it, man. Just that, just that connection with your food and that connection with other people that that engenders, that ability to, you know, seduce a woman or a man, that ability to bring your family over, your friends over and feed them. That's, that's an amazing feeling. And, you know, again, not to get too, too out there with this, but I really get a sense of satisfaction out of that. Well, and you, and you should, because again, it's like, uh, the thing that we're enjoying is so it, it, it probably goes back in some way to, you know, I've hunted this, you know, it took a long time to bring it to here and I'm 
relish the moments that I spent in this, uh, you know, it, it, but again, I don't want to get woo woo let, let, because I think we're putting a lot of mystification on something that anyone can do. And so let's maybe tell them how they can do it. Okay. Yeah. So cooking is not that hard. We're not going to give you guys recipes, but I will tell you this. If you go to acrossthepeak.com, go to the blog, there is an article uh, that I've been working on for a couple of weeks. I've, I've cooked this meal. I, I cook it pretty frequently. Uh, I've taken a bunch of pictures of it, and I think it's the one thing that you should know how to cook if you're only going to know how to cook one thing. I'm not going to spoil it here. You can go to acrossthepeak.com and, and check that out. It'll, it'll be concurrent with these show notes. But first things first, Simple and fresh ingredients. I am all about that, man. Most people, you know, you you throw an amazing meal on the table in front of them, and they're like, "Oh man, you you know, you must have all these kitchen tools or all these complicated techniques or all these whatever." And I guess for a few dishes, that that might be the case, but most things are just the result of really simple techniques executed well. And simple, fresh ingredients. The fresher you can get everything, the, the higher quality you can get everything, and the simpler you can keep it, the better off it is. And I know, you know, I, I come from an area similar to where you live, Rich, and I know a lot of recipes there, uh, a lot of recipes in my family uh, start out with something like, uh, start with a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup and then add a can of this and whatever. And to me, that's not really a recipe. To me, that's throwing together some foods that are already made and warming them, warming them up and, and consuming that. To me, cooking is taking this raw piece of meat, these raw vegetables, these spices, and turning those into, into something else. And the simpler those things are and the fresher they are and the higher quality they are, the better off you're going to be. Well, and I don't know if we mentioned it on another episode or whatever, but one of the things that I learned from you is like how you shop at a grocery store. Have you? Can you give us a little bit of insight on that? Yeah, I, I think we talked about that once before. And my strategy when I go to the grocery store is I don't buy anything that's a food. I buy things that are ingredients. And, and I, I guess I'm engaging in a little bit of hyperbole here when I say I don't buy anything that's food. I buy apples. Like, you can just pick up an apple and eat it, and that's what I do with them. But uh, instead of buying a lasagna that I throw in the oven, I buy noodles. I buy, you know, the ingredients for my sauce. I buy cheese. I buy an Italian sausage. I don't know. Whatever else you're putting in that thing, I buy the ingredients to put that thing together rather than foods. If I want cream of mushroom soup... I'm going to buy mushrooms. I'm going to buy heavy cream. I'm going to, I'm going to buy the ingredients to make that soup. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's kind of what we saw. Once again, I keep going back to uh, the UK, and 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 by all means, they do a lot of screwed up stuff. But I think the way they do food, you know, we uh, I took a picture of what we brought back to our little cottage, and it was fresh ingredients right from the local market, and we made some of the best food of our lives. So. Um, Starts with fresh ingredients, like you said. Don't don't no need to overcomplicate this stuff. Um, what do they do with it once they get the the good ingredient? So what's the next thing? Okay, so so again, we're just kind of sharing some principles here. So yeah, once you've gotten your ingredients, uh, I would say the next step in in kind of demystifying this process of cooking is find a recipe and read the whole thing before you start and understand it because things kind of have to happen in a certain order. 
uh, and understanding like, oh, this is what these bell peppers are going to use for can help you know how you want to how you want to cut those. If you get to the first step and it says, all right, chop the bell pepper and you chop it up super, super fine and then find out later you need it kind of bigger for whatever reason. Well, now you're going to be modifying your recipe. You're going to be running out to the store for another bell pepper. Read the whole thing first understand what needs to happen. There's also some time things. You might have to have an oven already heated up before you put that item in. So you want to know that well ahead of time. So you have plenty of time for your oven to come to temperature, especially if you get into things that I consider really complicated, like uh, making uh, uh, bread. I, I love making bread. I don't do it a lot because it's so time consuming and it's so um, just it, you got to be fairly precise with it, but especially if you get into things like that, read that entire recipe first and understand it before you dive in. Set yourself up for success before you just start make like changing your ingredients. Yeah, did you ever see that movie? It's kind of a chick flick, um, Julie and Julia. Did you ever see that? Yeah, I did see that. It's an interesting premise, uh, and it kind of goes with what we're talking about here. This woman had a blog. And she has, uh, you know, decided she was going to try to cook all 524 recipes that was in Julia Child's cookbook. And she was going to do it in 365 days. And she blogged about her experience and they ended up making a movie out of it. And it was a pretty damn cool movie because it goes into a lot of the things we talk about now. She developed greater relationships. She learned about ingredients she didn't know. She learned a lot about chemistry, you know, and how food goes together and what, um, you know, a lot of neat techniques and how it enriched her life. So a uh, pretty cool movie. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that is a, that is a real cool movie. And I really, really like that concept. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man, maybe I should take something like that on. Maybe I'll tell you what, maybe we should do here is a real small version, uh, throw together a week's worth of recipes and, uh, you know, on a, on a pretty reasonable budget and, you know, pretty reasonable, skill level and uh, maybe people can follow along with that we'll think about that at some point in the I, future maybe i love it and just for the listener man if you're if this is your first episode um justin and i aren't, aren't professional chefs man we're we've been knuckle draggers most of our lives you know um i'm bruised up head to toe from jujitsu i mean uh that's just how we live our life but again i don't want everyone to be a one-dimensional person like that's all there is to rich and justin they're a bunch of shooters and, and all this other kind of stuff you know i i think that uh, for me, there's a, uh, a sense of well-roundedness that comes from being able to cook a meal or do some of these other skills that we we discuss on this podcast, man. And, and cooking is definitely one of them. You want to you want to turn people's opinion of you quickly. Cook them a freaking good meal, man. Yeah, knock their socks off with with something that they don't expect you to know how to do. I, you know, I, I we were driving. Uh, I was driving down the road the other day and pointed out a vehicle that the back of it was just covered up with stickers about this guy's military career, you know, big old rank sticker and, you know, Afghanistan I served and jump wings and all this stuff. And I just thought, you know, that's great. I don't, I, we're both veterans. We're both combat veterans. I don't begrudge that guy his service at all. I don't begrudge him his right to, uh, to advertise that service and to be proud of it. He should be proud of it. But, what that makes me think when I see someone that has their vehicle decorated like that is that's probably all this guy can talk about. That's probably probably about as far as his knowledge base goes. And, you know, I, I'm proud of him. I appreciate his service, but he, he probably he's not a real interesting dude to hang around. And I could be way wrong. I could be dead wrong. 
But just the fact that someone chooses to put all their eggs in that one experience basket of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a scuba diver. That's my thing. I'm a dive instructor. That's all I want to talk about, all I want to do, all I know how to do. There's nothing more boring than that to me. I 100% agree. I'm, I feel the same way, man. As a, you know, I did 23 years in the Marine Corps, and that was a great experience, brother. But I closed that that book, you know, and moved on. And if you, you know, come into my house, you won't see a lot of oorah stuff or I love me walls and all that. Other stuff. I'm not begrudging anybody that does, man. But I want to be more than that, and that's what the show is about. You know, we're generalists, and we're. I'm, I guess we're glad we served on some. I'm not speaking for you, but man. There's more to it than that, and uh, learning to cook and and is uh, is big part of that for me. Oh yeah, military was a huge part of my life. One of the best experiences of my life, and I I would say anybody that has any kind of desire to serve in the military, man, just do it, go for it with reckless abandon, and give it all you got. But uh, yeah, that's also a season in my life that's that's passed me by, and I'll tell a war story every now and then, but. Um, but also, yeah, like you're saying, we're we're all about being well-rounded, being more than one thing, being multifaceted um, people. So, oh, one other thing on this, uh, how to learn to cook, and I think we, I don't want to skip over it because uh, I think when you wrote it in our show notes, it was a freaking phenomenal idea. If you go out to a restaurant, you really like the meal, man. Is there a way they can reverse engineer that or or something? I mean, so they can repeat that at home, man. So this is this is one of my favorite ways to get into cooking. If you if you're like, yeah, I should start cooking. I don't really know what to do. I don't really even know where even to start. If there's one thing that you really really love, I would say pick that thing and try to replicate it. Try to master it. So um key lime pie. I really love key lime pie and I don't know, this was one of the first things that, you know, I kind of became known for bringing to cookouts and stuff because I'm like, man, I love key lime pie, good key lime pie. I, I want to be able to make that. So I did a bunch of research. I read up all about the history of key lime pie and how it's made with uh, condensed evaporated milk because it came from Florida, from southern Florida. Before they had highways going down there, things had to come in on boat. Things took forever to get there, so everything was canned. But they had all these key limes, and they're like, man, what could we do with this stuff? I, I love that history of the food. What makes a you know a quote unquote true key lime pie? It should be yellow. It shouldn't be green, first of all. And I just started making key lime pies. And this is one thing I'll I'll, I'll tell you is don't be afraid to fail. And you're not really going to fail. It's going to seem like it some nights when you're hungry and you pull that thing out of the oven and it just absolutely sucks, whatever it is. But I guarantee you probably learned something uh, if you're paying attention to what you're doing at all, which you kind of have to to cook to begin with, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I think it's, you know, we have another saying on, on another podcast I'm on, we never um, fail, truly, we we uh, we either succeed or we learn, right? You know, this is either the best meal or I just learned that you can't substitute skim milk for heavy whipping cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, so yeah, pick something that you really like. Maybe it's something you like in a restaurant, like, oh, I, I like this Cajun chicken, I'm going to read up on Cajun chicken, find a recipe, and I'm going to give it a shot. And if it sucks, well, it might still be edible and I'll have a rough meal or two. Uh, And if it's great, great. But either way, you learn something, which really is the goal, right? Um, You know, back to my thing about uh, about serving people in my home. I'm never going to try a brand new recipe 
when I have people coming over, I'm going to go with something that I've cooked 25 times before and I know all the little mistakes you can make and I know about how it's going to come out and what I can fudge on a little bit here and there or substitute this ingredient with or leave this out or whatever. It takes practice, but finding that thing that you really like and choosing to master it, like I talked about at the beginning with the old fashioned, that's a great way to begin cooking if you have if you have no idea where to start and not a lot of drive, take something you like and learn to make it for yourself and make it better than wherever you normally get it. Yeah, right on, man. So what else do we need to know how to learn uh, how to learn to cook? Uh, so I would say uh, another awesome technique would be just to buy a cookbook that has some things you like. Uh, there, you know, whatever you're into. If you're into if you're into grilled meats, if you're into I am bread. If you're into cakes, if you're into whatever, I guarantee you there is a cookbook just for you. If you're into whole foods diet, I could point you two or three cookbooks. They're just about cooking with whole foods, no artificial ingredients, all that stuff. Find something that interests you, buy a cookbook about it, and find some recipes and start whacking away at them. Actually, there's an awesome Irish food cookbook that I just adore. Absolutely everything I've made out of that has been just amazing from... Dublin Coddle to Irish soda bread to you name it. I, I'll try to post some links to some of my favorite uh, cookbooks in the show notes, uh, which you can find on acrossthepeak.com. But yeah, man, just get a cookbook, find some things that you like, and start cooking them. Yeah, well, that's exactly what we did, man. Probably six or eight years ago, we bought a, um, oh, I don't remember where the heck we were founded at, but it was like an old used cookbook, and it was like pub food, uh, British pub food. And we went down the list making that stuff. And I think I think we need to talk about that offline. I think that'd make a great little blog series. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that, man. So uh, I'm going to say my last tip uh, for learning to cook and, and trying to incorporate cooking into your normal routine and your nor- normal diet would be to plan ahead. So this requires going to the grocery store ahead of time, having kind of a menu in your head ahead of time, or or maybe cooking something big that will give you a bunch of leftovers or something. But uh, for me, I, I know it's really easy when I get home late uh, for, for whatever reason, I'm tired and I don't have a, a solid plan or I don't have the stuff in the fridge to do it with. It is really, really easy for me to just say, hey, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to call in a pizza or I'm going to, I'm just going to run over here to the Thai place real quick. Um, you have to get into a habit of of planning meals ahead. Yeah. And it reminds me like of our, when we did our sleep episode, you know, the, you plan ahead for your sleep, get your stuff set up. You plan ahead, whether you're preparing meals for the week or, or whatever the case, but that is so freaking important. If you're like, uh, some, some people I know that members of my family included that will, they don't start, you know, thinking about a meal until like nine o'clock after I'm long in bed, you know, or or what have you. I'm I'm chilling with my my beautiful bride in the bedroom, but that's when they start going. Eh, what are we going to eat? Well, at that point, preparing ingredients and making a meal is out of the question. So you end up ordering a bunch of garbage. So man, that is that is a great idea. Start thinking about what you're going to eat maybe the day before or two days before, right? Yeah, man, we we talk about that. Like we kind of have an idea of, in our head of what we're going to make days ahead of time. Uh, and actually, just yesterday or day before, I cooked this massive pork shoulder. So we've got a bunch of leftovers from that. And basically, just every night we're like, okay, what are we having as sides with 
pulled pork sandwiches? What are we having as sides with pork tacos? What are we having as sides with a pork roast dinner? Um, so, so that makes it, um, you know, that, that really makes it easier. And we both, uh, if what you're making is good stuff, you will be excited about eating it. Right on. Uh, all right, man. Uh, I, I think that's kind of some generalities about how to cook a meal. I think we gave listeners a really good overview of some of the benefits uh, of cooking a meal and maybe kind of demystified cooking just a little bit. I know we didn't give you know, real explicit instructions or, or recipes or anything like that. Uh, I am going to post a recipe for one of my absolute favorite things to cook on the blog, um, but... Let's go ahead. Uh, you want to go ahead and move on and talk about the uh, book of the week? Yeah, the book of the week this year uh, is your book, right? I mean, it's, uh, what is it, The 100 Mile Diet? Yeah, The 100 Mile Diet. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. Man, this is a, an absolutely phenomenal book that I read uh, probably a couple of years ago. Uh, this is two people, a, a husband and wife, Lisa Smith and James McKinnon, that decided and they lived in Vancouver, British Columbia. So in the Pacific Northwest, they decided we are not going to eat anything that did, that came from more than a hundred miles away from our house. They drew a hundred mile circle around their house and said, this is where we're getting our food and that's it. And they blogged about it. It got immensely popular and they, and they wrote this book, but there were a lot of unintended consequences to that. So what they discovered uh, that led them up to this is that most of your meal like most of the things we eat on average travel about 1500 miles to get to your plate from wherever it came from, because we were growing this, you know, just these massive fields of corn in the Midwest and, you know, bananas are coming from South America and, you know, just all the stuff's coming from all over the world to get to your plate, which consumes massive amounts of food. uh, I'm sorry, massive amounts of fuel to get it there. All sorts of packaging, we have less high quality food because it has to be picked ahead of its peak ripeness and freshness and uh, has to be refrigerated and all this stuff. So they got into this 100 mile diet and it, it's absolutely fascinating to listen to them talk about it. It's fascinating to listen to some of the challenges they faced. One thing they didn't anticipate was beer. There's not a lot of wheat or barley grown in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, I, I think they eventually found some wine that was grown up there, but uh that, that was kind of a little bit of a challenge for them. They had a, a tough winter and ate just a ton of root vegetables because if you're not familiar with the Pacific Northwest, it's really cold and wet, and it's hard to, it's hard to grow things in the winter. So uh, really fascinating book and really probably sums up my part of my strategy for how I eat. Organic is cool. Non-GMO is cool. I, I really don't care about that stuff all that much because there's still pesticides on organic food. It's just organic approved pesticides. I don't get all wrapped around the axle about organic and non-GMO and all that stuff. I'll, I'll take it if there's an option between the two that are otherwise equal, but I'm not going to bend over backwards to find the organic carrot when I can buy a conventional carrot. What I do care about is whole foods, and what I would prioritize right under that is trying to buy things that come from close to me. Yeah, totally, man. And uh, you see my garden. It's the smallest it's ever been uh, since I retired. And, you know, but next year we're going we're gonna to do it up right. But we, normally what we'll do is, you know, we'll grow a huge garden. We'll process it all. When I say process it, I'm talking about chopping it up, but in bags and things of that nature. And then we'll put it in a uh, – we've got two huge deep freezes out in the garage – 
And then we buy our produce, uh, I'm sorry, we buy our beef from a guy down the road. And you can walk onto his farm. You can see it's black Angus beef. They're all eating grass. They've never seen corn. And um, he harvests those, and we buy from him totally. So, And it, and the guy lives like, what, quarter mile down the road from me? I and mean, I can walk to his house and see the cows that I'm going to be eating. So I, I think that is so important. I'm definitely going to have to check that book out, man, because I just love that idea. Yeah, and, I'm, and one other thing on that, I'm so no, sorry, Justin. One thing we, I don't know that we've mentioned it before. You know, I was a beekeeper for years, um, and and my colony didn't make it. And uh, but we'll have to get that going again. But I tell you what, that is another thing. You want to really think about your food. Think about how it's pollinated. And um, I have some fruit trees, so I put my beehive in in the midst of the fruit trees so that they could get my apples and pears going and then they would the the biggest yields I ever had was the three or four years that that we had bees here on the farm. Yeah man that is I, I think we might have mentioned that before too but yeah keeping bees is something I definitely want to try my hand out and I, I definitely think that's a big part of of a food system and you know I'm I'm not I'm not a big hippie uh you know environmentalism is not my number one concern day to day. I recycle and I, you know, I try to, you know, I, I guess I'm taking half measures on that because I, I, you know, the one thing I can tell you is that nothing is absolutely unlimited. Um, and I really like the, uh, you know, kind of the environmental impact of, of eating local as well. Plus you get better quality ingredients. You get, you get things that are picked at, at the peak of their freshness, if I'm going to sell my strawberries at the farmer's market, I'm not going to pick, you know, green strawberries that are still kind of hard that are going to survive, you know, a 1500 mile journey to get to wherever they're going. I'm going to pick ripe strawberries that people are going to walk by, taste one and be like, Oh, let's buy a basket of this guy's strawberries. Yeah. Uh, And man, I I had a, I had a great idea and I'm having a, a senior moment here, but, uh, yeah, I think that the closer you can get to your food, I mean, that's the bottom line, right? I, I I don't want something that is, I know what I was going to say. It had to do with the ecosystem or the environment or whatever. The only thing, do I care about the planet? Am I weirded out about it? No. Do we recycle? Absolutely. And I think that's a responsible thing to do. But to me, the idea of uh, recycling and eating healthier and not wanting this factory process crap is because not necessarily the environment, because I'm part of the environment. I'm part of this ecosystem. I don't want the water tables polluted. So if I'm an environmentalist, it's only for the selfish reason that I don't want to be poisoned. Right, right. And and that kills me, man. Everyone in like in the area that I grew up in has wells on their property. And almost like it is unbelievable how many people will drag all kinds of trash, mattresses, plastic bottles, everything else, and build a big fire right next to where their well is. And I'm just thinking, man, that this stuff has to go somewhere. Yeah, it's going down into the water table. Yeah, come on, man. It's not, <laughs> yeah, it, it's not hard. I, it, man, just so short-sighted. Anyway, um, I, as you can tell, I can wax pretty philosophical about, uh, about food, and I, can, uh, I, pro- I hope I haven't just completely talked your ear off here, Rich. But, um, yeah, check out The 100-Mile Diet. Uh, do you want to close us out? Yeah, uh, guys, thanks for listening to Across the Peak. Uh, Justin and I really appreciate it. Check us out at acrossthepeak.com if you haven't already for show notes and additional content. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, man, do so uh, when you 
pull the car off the road, of course. Don't hurt yourself or put the weights down, whatever you're doing. But uh, please do so. This makes sure that you don't miss a single episode and share it with somebody who can use this content as well. And And until we meet again, remember, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.